We finished running up the hill of season four of Stranger Things, and I have my thoughts on the second volume right now. Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle here with my spoiler review of Volume 2 of Stranger Things 4. These were the final, well, the final two episodes, but it was about four hours of show, so it felt like way more than two episodes. If you want to see my spoiler review of the first volume, you can click the little thing up there in the corner. But I will not be doing a non-spoiler section, so if you have not yet seen the final two episodes of Stranger Things 4, clear off a few hours on your schedule, go watch them and come back. Let's take a deep dive into spoilers for Stranger Things 4. So this was the first time that Stranger Things tried this split season approach, and I'll be interested to see how they approach the final season whenever that does come out, Stranger Things 5. It was kind of a great compromise solution between the binge model uh, and the weekly model, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see this make a comeback. And one thing that it did allow the Duffer Brothers to do was sort of do this mid-season round of press. And I've got to say, there was lots of uh, death baiting going on. I mean, it seemed like the entire media focus leading up to Stranger Things 4 was, who's going to die? Who are they going to kill? The Duffer Brothers were, you know, hyping it up, and the cast members were talking about it. I mean, it, it sounded like it was going to be an absolute slaughterhouse. It wasn't really, but the Duffer Brothers actually did some kind of cool stuff with the concept of character deaths that I think kind of tweaked the whole idea of setting up someone dying and playing with our anticipation of an audience as to who the show is going to kill off. So it all started with Steve Harrington, who seemed to be the top list in the Deadpool for this season. Just about everybody, it seemed, was convinced that Steve Harrington was not going to be breathing at the end of Stranger Things 4. And early in this eighth episode, we got the scene where they're driving the RV, and Steve's talking to Nancy, and he's talking about the future and all the kids he's always dreamed of having. I always had this dream that I'd have this, like, this really, really big family. I'm talking like a full brood of Harringtons. And at that point, I was like, well, they're not even pretending that it's not going to be Steve, because that's how it always works. In any movie or TV show, if a character talks about his hopes and dreams and the family he wants to have one day, then he's a goner. They're not making it out of this show alive. Then later on, we had the scene with Joyce and Hopper, where they're having this very flirtatious uh, back and forth, and they're planning for this big romantic dinner date when they get out of Russia. Gotta have to say and after that, I don't know. And again, in my head, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Then one of them is not going to make it out because that's the other thing that always happens. If you make a big dinner date plan, you're not going to be able to do that dinner date. So I was like, wow. So Steve and then like Joyce or Hopper, they're really telegraphing all this. But then that was followed by the scene where Max and Lucas also make a date plan. And then you had the scene where Will is talking to Mike and he's basically saying like, Mike, you're the heart of the team. You're the leader. We can't survive without you. Without heart, we'd all fall apart. Even Elle, especially Elle. And in fact, when you go back through the season, I think just about every single major character had a scene or a story beat that in a traditional narrative marks them for some kind of a death and some kind of a heroic sacrifice. And I kind of appreciate what the Duffer Brothers were doing there. And I have to assume that it was intentional. I think that they were very well aware of the, the way that modern fandom works and the way that the media works now in the entertainment industry and the fact that character deaths are the main focus always when people are talking about a show, especially 
one like Stranger Things. You're getting near the end. It's obvious that probably not all of our favorites are going to make it. I like that they basically were marking every single character for death in these last couple of episodes before we got to the end because it kept us all on our toes. But let's talk about who actually did bite the dust, or at least who I'm pretty sure actually bit the dust. The show's actually done the fake death thing several times. Will and Eleven and Dr. Brenner back in season one. We had Hopper last season. So just because you think that a character dies, that doesn't necessarily mean that they do die, but everything was pretty definitive, it seemed like, this season. And it also seems like for the second time that we did get the death of Dr. Brenner, played by Matthew Modine. It appears that Dr. Brenner met his end at the hands of a military sniper on the hot, dusty desert sands as he was trying to escape with Eleven, shortly after trying to force her back into this life as his own personal lab rat. You and I are going to complete our work together. And when I decide that you are ready, we will return to Hawkins. And I actually really liked how they dealt with his death here because he's laying, dying on the ground and he's begging Eleven for her understanding and her forgiveness. Everything I did, I did for you. I need you to understand. Please tell me you understand. And in a lot of different shows, you see that. You have somebody who's been a villain, and then in the last, like, scene, they kind of take a, a face turn, if you will. And, you know, oh, no, I was misunderstood all, the, all along. And then in the sake of some kind of an emotional moment, the character that they've been wronging for years or seasons or however long gives them that uh, absolution. And I was sitting on the couch watching that last scene saying, oh, please don't let him off the hook. Please don't tell him it's okay. And she didn't do it. And I think that that was a great scene for the character of Eleven to show her growth, her growth as a person, the fact that these manipulations won't work on her anymore. It is you. You are the monster. Speaking of satisfying deaths, we got one of the most gruesome deaths in the history of Stranger Things, but also one of the quickest uh, with Jason. Jason was a thorn in the side of our characters and turned really murderous uh, in these last couple episodes. Uh, but when Hawkins was being split in two by the upside down, I mean, Jason just getting dissolved in half. Now, I'm not going to say he didn't deserve it. And I think that most people had his survival chances down to pretty much zero when we were going into these final couple of episodes. But they really did dispense with him in a way that like didn't seem overly cruel or elaborate, but was gruesome and grotesque enough to feel like a fitting end to this character who just really was unhinged. I'm gonna back away to the top of the stairs there and I'll watch as you wake her up from whatever the hell this is. It appeared for a hot minute, pun intended, that Vecna may have actually bitten the upside down dust, but according to Will, he didn't. He's still down there in the upside down and appears to be an even bigger threat than ever. He's not going to stop. Ever. Not until he's taken everything and everyone. When I wrapped up my thoughts on Volume 1, I said that I was a little skeptical about Vecna being injected into the overall history of the Upside Down as this key figure from Eleven's life and basically kind of the person that started it all. I will say that these last two episodes handled his inclusion into that mythology uh, pretty well. 
and it allayed a lot of my fears about like, oh, is this going to work? It, it seems like kind of an awkward fit. That's that's why I wanted to sort of reserve final judgment until I'd seen these episodes. I'm still not exactly sure how the show is going to write the finale so that it, it seems to make logical sense that he was pulling the strings for everything. I do think that there's a lot of potential there as long as they don't sort of write themselves into a corner. The good news is this isn't like network TV where you basically have a summer break and then have to like rush to kind of figure out how to get out of the last season's jam. They have plenty of time to sit and brainstorm uh, what the ending of the show is going to be. They say that they've had certain elements done already. Uh, so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because it, it wasn't quite as awkward a fit as I thought it might have been a couple episodes ago. Somebody else who I thought was a goner, and, and I guess she technically did die, it's just that she was brought back, was Max. I mean, as soon as her bones started breaking, I was like, Oh my God, after everything that she went through this season, they're actually gonna kill her. And she would have been a goner, but Elle kind of pulled some sort of a Ben Solo trick and brought her back from the brink of death. Now, she is in a coma. It seems like uh, she perhaps doesn't have a soul or, or something like that because Elle went into her mind and there was nothing there. But I, I don't think this is the last that we've seen of Max or her as a consequential character. I don't think they're just gonna leave her in a coma for the rest of her life. I think that Max is too important as a character. I think that that conflict is too important for Elle's character. And I think that Vecna still has a part to play wherever he is. But let's talk about the heroic death that I think broke everybody's hearts. And that would be the demise, the heroic demise of Eddie Munson, who died fighting a swarm of upside down bats in order to buy his friends some more time. I think we all knew or heavily suspected that Eddie was not going to make it out of the season because Stranger Things has a pattern that they've repeated in just about every season where they introduce a new character that everybody loves and they kill him off in that season. And, th and that just seems to happen over and over again. So it wasn't a huge shocker that Eddie didn't make it, but I think that the execution was done really well. And a lot of that credit goes to Joseph Quinn, who really brought me around on this character for somebody I really wasn't sure about at the beginning of the season to somebody who I really liked at the end of it. I think it's my year, Anderson. I think it's finally my year. I loved Eddie's defense at the very beginning of Iron Maiden as actual music when they're trying to pull Nancy out of her Vecna curse. What are you even looking for? Music! We need music! This is music! I never actually thought that the Dustin Steve bromance would ever be threatened on this show, but the Dustin Eddie bromance was so great. Never change. Dustin Henderson. Promise me? And Eddie got in that last episode one of my favorite Stranger Things moments ever, which is him on the top of his trailer playing the guitar solo to Metallica's Master of Puppets while a swarm of upside-down bats are heading his way as red lightning strikes in the clouds. Ronnie James Dio himself could not have conceived of a better metal moment than this. Joseph Quinn just brought so much to this character over the course of the season, and that last scene with Dustin was just so heartbreaking and sweet, but sad at the same time, and, and huge props to Gaten Matarazzo, who was also great throughout the season, but particularly in these last couple of episodes. Eddie was a beloved character by the end of season four, but he was also the season's whipping boy. He was an outcast. He was a suspected murderer. He was misunderstood. He sacrificed his life to help save the town, only to be remembered as a murderous cult leader who may have unleashed hell on the entire town. And, you know, we talked about justice for Barb. I mean, justice for Eddie. It's the news. 
Now indistinguishable from the tabloids. I really hope that season five gives him some absolution beyond that really nice scene that we got where Dustin was able to tell Eddie's uncle just how heroic his nephew really was. He fought and died to protect this town. This town that hated him. So let's talk about some of our living characters, and we'll start with Will. And I know that I and a lot of other viewers had hoped that Will would have a substantial part to play in these last couple episodes. He didn't really, to be honest. We kind of got more of the same. There was even more heavy intimation that Will is gay in a scene that was beautifully acted by Noah Schnapp. When you're different, sometimes you feel like a mistake. We also got a nice small scene between Will and Jonathan where Jonathan tells his brother that he will always love him and accept him, so he kind of vaguely accepts Will's theoretical homosexuality. You're my brother, and I love you. There is nothing in this world, okay? Absolutely nothing that will ever change that. But overall, it was a lot of crying and longing stares and hugging. And worst of all, it seems like Will is right back in the role where we've seen him for several seasons already as the Harbinger of Doom, complete with the neck hairs of fate. I can still remember what he thinks and how he thinks. I really, really hope that season five is the season where they crack Will's character. They figure out what to do with him. And I, I've been saying that since season two. But you have an actor like Noah Schnapp, who's been terrific in this show uh, from the very beginning, from season one. But we seem to kind of be hitting the same beats with him over and over and over again. And I really hope that they break him out of this role and, and maybe even kind of make him the star of season five in many ways. I mean, Will has more experience with the Upside Down than any other character in the show, save perhaps for 11. So let's get him right there in the front of the action and also really develop who he is, not kind of hint at or intimate. And I know a lot of people have said like, well, if Will's gay, it's the 80s. And so it wouldn't be something that, you know, was out there in the open. I understand that. But at the same time, Robin is gay. She was open about it. Tammy Thompson's a girl. I think that that's done great things for her character. It did great things for Steve's character. So I, I don't really know if that excuse or reasoning holds water. I just want to see Will Byers finally get fully rounded out as a character instead of kind of being this utility player. Every other main member of the cast has gotten their scenes and their moments to shine, and Noah Schnapp kind of has to fight for these little scraps, but he does so well with what he's given. So that's on my wish list for season five. Let's actually give Will something great, something new to do. We got some progress in the Mike 11 relationship after the show kept them apart for most of the season. We had this declaration of love from Mike in order to get Eleven to access this hidden level and fight back against Vecna. That was definitely a little cliche, but the show keeps doing this. They, they do cliche, but they do it really well because I actually liked Mike's reasoning. The fact that he was pulling away from Eleven, not because he didn't love her or like her, but because he was trying to protect himself in a very selfish way because he thought that there would be the day when Eleven doesn't need him because she's so powerful and can do so many different things. And Finn Wolfhard acted that scene really well. I love you for exactly who you are. You're my superhero. Stranger Things is actually pretty consistent 
about this. There's nothing really that groundbreaking about a lot of the story, but it is constantly elevated by the likability of the characters, by the actors who were cast in those roles, and by the style of the show. And so you have story beats that we have seen in many TV shows and movies before, but they're all just kind of bumped up one level because of the A-plus work that's being done elsewhere. I said at the end of Volume 1 that if the Russia gang ended up being trapped again in the Russian prison that I was going to throw something at the TV. Well, I'm glad that there weren't a whole lot of loose objects within arm's reach because for the second time this season, we had a storyline where Hopper escaped from the Russian prison and then ended up going back to the Russian prison. This time, though, he went back of his own volition in order to fight the Demogorgon and the smoke monster from Lost so that they could buy the kids time for their battle in Hawkins from where they were. It was a stretch. Let's be honest. It was a little bit of a stretch to keep them there. But again, the execution is what saved it. We got to see Murray roast a Demogorgon and a bunch of Demodogs with a flamethrower. That was pretty cool. Murray was a secret MVP this season. Hopper went all Neville Longbottom on a Demogorgon with a big sword. So from an action standpoint, it didn't disappoint. I was a little miffed at Hopper, though, at one point, because when they were headed back to the Russian prison, they're all crawling out of this manhole, and Hopper comes out first, and he helps Joyce up, and he helps Enzo up, and then he just leaves Murray to, like, struggle and, like, pull himself out. It's like, come on, give Murray a little bit of respect here. We didn't get a whole lot of closure on Enzo, Yuri, or Murray, other than the fact that they're alive. We may see them next season, but we did get the reunion between Hopper and Eleven. They are father and daughter again. Hopper and Joyce are back together, so it seems like we've got one big happy family going on, and David Harbour and Millie Bobby Brown, again, both great actors, and they crush that reunion scene. I got the door open three inches. I stop believing. I know, it's okay. Okay. Speaking of Eleven, these last two episodes were, were a lot about her finding a new level to her powers, and I loved that visual in episode eight where she's bringing the helicopter down and we get that shot from behind with the fireball coming up. Millie Bobby Brown gives great nosebleed, I'm gonna kill you face. It's a face that she's been using for four seasons now. It still hasn't gotten old even though they use it in just about every episode. This is a much more powerful Eleven, which is honestly a beat that we've done on the show before. Eleven is struggling with her powers. She faces a mighty enemy. It looks like she's going to be defeated. And then somebody unlocks a new special level to Eleven's powers and she's able to come back and then beat that bad guy. She also sets a summer record actually breaking Chris Pratt's record for most time in a movie or TV show spent with your hand out like this. It really is what I call the X-Men gamble. You have to trust as an actor that your director isn't gonna make what you're doing look stupid, but the Duffer brothers know how to do style, and like I said, Millie Bobby Brown gives great determined nosebleed face, so Eleven always looks cool when she is bringing things down with her mind. Millie Bobby Brown, by the way, was put through the ringer this season because I, I think that like 75% of Eleven scenes were her either crying or screaming or both. And I just don't know, as an actor, how folks like Millie Bobby Brown are able to access those emotions so consistently. Uh, it is just a talent and a skill that I am constantly uh, in awe of. I think that Millie Bobby Brown deserves a lot of credit for why the season worked as well as it did, but she also has a lot of range. She doesn't just do pain and crying. I think she also had the funniest laugh line of the season. I'm real. How? I piggybacked from a pizza dough freezer. What? It seems like season five is gonna be a largely personal showdown between Eleven and Vecna, two people that just really don't like each other. If you touch her again, 
I will kill you again. The concept of Vecna using Eleven's ability to open portals as the ultimate victory over Hawkins and a way to bring the Upside Down into the real world is a really interesting one. And they tie it into the murders from this season, uh, again, sort of in a retroactive way that, that somewhat makes sense. It does help for there to be sort of a personified enemy. I mean, the Mind Flayer is a very... Uh, scary creature but I, it is very intimidating to have the upside downs big bad be somebody who can actually interact with you and not just kind of snarl and growl so i am hoping in this fifth season that we're going to see jamie campbell bauer back even if there's some sort of a character redesign because it did work well ultimately for this season the structure of season five could also be interesting because I'm, I do want to know more about how Vecna built the upside down as we see it, because we did see this flashback after Eleven sent him through the portal, and the upside down that he entered was one without the Mind Flayer. He sort of helped to assemble that being, and it was not this built-up version of Hawkins. It was very much a wasteland with Demogorgons just kind of wandering around and you know how did he transform it the way that it was done i mean were there upside down construction crews that were looking at blueprints and stuff like how did it turn into this world and 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 i do want to see this is a case where you can do backstory sometimes they give us explanations for things that we don't need explanations for this is one where i think you could probably do a really solid season five episode that's just sort of like this is how the upside down came to be and vecna being at the head of that of course, the Hawkins upside down relationship is now fully intertwined. And there's actually a moment where in episode eight, Dr. Brenner is talking to Eleven and he's like, Imagine, if you will, the barrier between our worlds is a... And I was really worried that he was going to do the folding the piece of paper with the pen through it thing uh, that was in, the I think, the first season of Stranger Things. It was in Interstellar. It was in Event Horizon. So I'm glad that he used the, the pencil, a different kind of writing implement, as an analogy and the idea that you know, this barrier at some point is going to crack. Well, we've seen that barrier crack now. And so we're starting off this fifth season from a very interesting place. We don't have to sort of reset what's going on with the upside down. Now we already know. I love that final visual uh, of the season as the, the sort of upside down dust started floating down. And then we see the town with the smoke rising and the red lightning and stuff. It's very Mordor-esque. It gave me kind of a Lord of the Rings feel. It does make me wonder if it was a red herring because the Duffer brothers said that they thought that there would be a time jump of, you know, more than just a few months as we go into season five. But I don't really understand how that could be because, you know, is Hawkins just going to be chilling there for a few years? That'll either be a very interesting writing challenge or I wonder if they were just kind of saying that to throw people off the track to the game changer that would come at the end of this season. So let's talk a little bit about Sadie Sink. I, I mentioned the character of Max earlier in this review. Uh, back in my review for Volume 1, I said that I thought that the fourth episode, I think, Dear Billy, was the best episode of the season. It was largely due to Sadie Sink's performance. Everything that she did in those first few episodes was really just underlined in pen in this one. I think that she legitimately needs to be considered for Emmy nomination for this show. Not like graded on a curve or whatever. Like she put in one of the best performances I have seen in a TV show in a very long time. So that's why I'm here. Because I just want you to take me away. Kayla McLaughlin as well, that scene where Max has died before Eleven brings her back and he's just holding her and just that heartbreak there. Uh, I, I didn't know he had that capability in him as an actor. He showed me more than I've ever seen from him on this show. No, 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 no. Max, Max, please stay with me. I don't Help! 
And really, when it comes to the entire main cast, I mean, I may not have loved where the story took these characters uh, through parts of this season in particular, but like every one of them is always on their A-plus game. I mean, I, I hated that Hopper was in Russian prison for basically the whole season, but David Harbour was so good this season in the scenes that they gave him. Stranger Things is really one of those lightning in a bottle shows. It's one of those shows like Lost or Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones where literally every major character is cast perfectly and you, you just you can't overstate how far that can take you as a show because I think with actors that didn't fit these roles as well maybe there were parts of the season that would bother me a little bit more than they already did it's just that they deliver so much on anything that they're given that they can almost make up single-handedly for some of the what I thought were some storytelling deficiencies this season. And speaking of likable actors, let's talk about Joe Keery and Steve Harrington, who continues to become the most likable person on a show full of likable people. And a lot of it comes down to the writing. I love the scene where he was walking with Nancy and Steve gets kind of introspective and talks about his own shortcomings and the fact that he likes that he's grown over the last few years. I think like right out of the gate, like I'm super confident, you know, but I'm also like an idiot. Which is just, I mean, it's a brutal combination. And when we talk about Steve and Nancy, I think at this point in the show, there are two options. One of them is that Steve and Nancy get together at the end of the show. The other one is that one or both of them die. Because I, I just don't see a path forward now with Nancy and Jonathan. I think you've laid too much great storytelling uh, track down this season. And we, we're, we've already established that Nancy and Jonathan, even though they're reunited, are not doing well. And Jonathan lied about the whole college thing. I hated Steve Harrington in the first season. I was like, Nancy, get away from this guy as quickly as you can. And Joe Keery and the Duffer brothers and the writers on Stranger Things have completely done a 180 on this character. And it's really, really been well done. You're there. You've always been there. So let's talk about a few scattered character notes. Robin seems to maybe still have a shot with Vicky. It looked like she might have a boyfriend, but they broke up and they have this kind of meet cute at the shelter at the end. So perhaps we'll see more of Robin and Vicky next season. Lucas's sister Erica didn't get a whole lot to do. She was part of the plan uh, in the last episode, but she did get one of my favorite laugh lines of the entire season when she injected a D&D &D wordage into a street fight. Argyle was pretty good comedy relief. He was a little one note, a little Cheech and Chongy, but he was well acted by Eduardo Franco. I actually did laugh quite a bit at his theory that when they were looking for Nina in the desert, that it was not a government facility, but it was in fact a small woman named Nina that was in the middle of the desert. It's not a small woman. Small woman out in this desert would be hard to see. How is he still high? I also, in my own headcanon, have determined that Argyle, the character, would go on based off of his experiences in this season of Stranger Things to write some kind of a sci-fi novel that would inspire Christopher Nolan to make the movie Inception. I think it is another memory. A memory within a memory? From a production standpoint, I think this is probably the best this show has ever looked. The visual effects were on point and apparently they were being finished right up until the day 
of the premiere. I think a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that this show, I'm sure, has an unlimited budget. It is Netflix's, by far, most blockbuster franchise, and they're desperately in need of blockbuster franchises right now. But even things like the blood balloons bursting in the snowball memory, that was a very Stephen King, it kind of imagery. The show still does creepy really well. It's not just all about big computer effects, etc. I love the production design. I love the visual effects, uh, the music, the sound mixing. Everything was really top-notch this season. From a soundtrack point of view, of course, Volume 1 had Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, which just exploded after that first volume. It's still, I think, topping a lot of charts. But this season also gave us one of my favorite soundtrack choices, which was a really badass remix of Journey Separate Ways Worlds Apart to end Episode 8. Full disclosure, though, I'm a little bit biased because I have long contended that that song, Separate Ways, should be rightfully remembered as the essential journey song instead of Don't Stop Believing." So perhaps that's just my own personal bias peeking through. I know that some people have labeled this show as derivative or as style over substance, but I think it is actually able to achieve kind of a synthesis that a lot of other TV shows and movies have tried and haven't been able to do, which is that it kind of weaponizes our nostalgia and creates this mixture of story beats from other movies and TV shows that were popular with extremely likable and really well-written characters. And I think it's a combination that really, really works for this show. I, I don't think that the references that it's making or the fact that it is like other media is something that the Duffer Brothers are doing to create some kind of a shortcut. In a way, I think it's almost a shorthand. It's a way for the show to endear these characters to us that much more so that by the end of it, we don't care about the references and the music and the posters on the wall. We care about Eleven and Will and Hopper and Joyce. And I think that that's where we've gotten to at this point in the show. There was one thing, though, this season that really surprised me and put me back on my heels, and that was Volume 2's unambiguous endorsement of Pineapple on Pizza. Good. Mm. It's good? What do you mm -hmm. mean it's good? Really good. What? That's insane. That's blasphemous. It is really bold for a show of this magnitude to take such a firm stance on a controversial issue, and, you know, I, I'm not a fan personally of pineapple on pizza. I don't think that it's like the worst thing in the world, but it seems like the Duffer Brothers have really closed debate on this issue. To steal the title of the show, stranger things have happened on the show than just this open embrace of the controversial pineapple on pizza, but this was one of the most surprising turns of events. Dude, this is pineapple. Try before you deny. So for season five, we have a destroyed Hawkins. We have an upside down that's encroaching into the real world. We have a looming final showdown between Vecna and Eleven. And more than anything, I really do hope that the Duffer Brothers use season five as a springboard to shake up the Stranger Things formula because it's generally worked well. But I think that we've probably gone through our last iteration of... Weird stuff happens, the group splits up, a likable new character is introduced and then dies, and then everyone is saved when Eleven finds a new level to her power. I think that story was a little creaky this time, and I hope that as we go into season five, that the Duffer Brothers really feel that freedom to break the mold and give us some really big stakes, as if we already didn't have big stakes enough on this series, but to really just blow our minds 
and bring this whole show to a close. So those are my thoughts on volume two of Stranger Things 4. What did you think? Did you like this split thing where we've got several episodes and then the last few, or would you rather they have all just come out at once? Let me know down in the comments below. And as always, if you want to see what else I'm up to, you can check me out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dan Merle. Thank you so much for joining me. I will be back next week with a full look at the Minionrific box office results from the July 4th weekend. Also, I will have both non-spoiler and spoiler reviews of Thor Love and Thunder. Once that hits theaters, I'm excited to see that as well. Stay safe, and I'll see you then. Bye.